The people of Pace University are doing amazing things, and I want you to know more about them. I am Marvin Krizlov, the president of Pace, and this is the Pace Cast. At Pace University, we are committed to protecting our environment. We do that in how we run our campuses, working to conserve our usage of power and water, and by aiming to reduce waste. And we're also doing that in our academic work and programs. Today, I'm going to talk to Professor Katie Koo, Director of our Environmental Law Programs at the Elizabeth Haub School of Law. And then we'll also talk to Professor Melanie Dupuy, who chairs the Department of Environmental Studies and Science on our Pleasantville and New York City campuses. They both run innovative, dynamic programs that help conserve and protect the environment around us and help train our students for careers in conservation, protection, sustainability, and environmental policy. First up, Katie Koo. Hi, Katie. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Katie, last year, for the first time, U.S. News & World Report ranked the Haub Law School as the number one environmental law program in the country. This week, and we're recording in mid-February, there's a major conference on environmental law happening there. Then, at the end of this week, you'll be hosting the biggest moot court competition in the country. That's a lot of big deal stuff. So, what's going on? What's going on is that I should be absolutely exhausted because I spent all day Wednesday hosting 80 clim leading climate attorneys from around the country at PACE. I've coached four rounds of their three rounds of the National Environmental Moot Court uh, competition, but instead I'm completely energized uh, because we've had such fabulous programs. So starting on Wednesday, the American Bar Association uh, section on, on environment and energy resources co-hosted a conference at PACE focused on climate disruption and decarbonization. Um, and we brought together some of the leading minds um, on how the United States, what it needs to do with respect to using law to help implement and shape policy um, to help us make progress on mitigating climate change. It was a fantastic um, conference, and our very own Professor John Nolan was one of the featured uh, featured speakers, um, and we had a wonderful keynote address given by Roger Martella, who is the former general counsel of the Environmental uh, Protection Agency, and here in New York has been working with General Electric um, to help um, reach an agreement on the cleanup of the Housatonic, very, something that's very near and dear to the hearts of many uh, New York uh, residents. So that was Wednesday. For those of us who weren't able to be there, what was the big takeaway from Wednesday's event? The big takeaway um, is that it's enormously important at this moment in time to get the people who are working on these issues in the same place, talking and sharing ideas. And the reason is um, we have around the country a whole host of state and local laws that have been adopted, setting, for example, targets to achieve 100% renewable energy by specific deadlines. We now have the political will and the policy in place in many states, but it's going to take an enormous amount of legal elbow grease um, and creative thinking and um, investment uh, to actually um, implement 
all of those policies and to make sure we use that political will to reduce emissions. So the takeaway for me was that we had a number of panels where you had the speakers on the panels in conversation with one another saying, wow, we need to have another entire conference devoted just specifically to this issue. Well, so it sounds like the conclusion was that the lawyers and a lot of people are very cynical about lawyers, of course, but it sounds like the lawyers really do have an important role in creating the kind of change that you're talking about in terms of environment and climate. Not only an, an important role, but I feel like this is the moment that environmental lawyers have been waiting for for decades, which is we are ready to put shovels in the ground and actually give effect to climate mitigation policies. We have been busy drafting model city ordinances, model statutes, thinking about model contracts that can be used um, for uh, power agreements. Um, we are ready and eager uh, to jump in um, and actually work toward implementation of greenhouse gas emission reduction after spending a lot of time focused on trying to help generate the political will um, to address those issues. Wow. That's very inspiring. And you were going to say something about the moot court competition as well. On Thursday, we started our national environmental law moot court competition. And like many things at Pace Law School, um, it is a student-oriented and student-driven program. So the origin of the moot court competition is that one of our environmental law students uh, back in the 1970s uh, went to a... Um, meeting of other environmental law um, uh, law schools around the country. And as the law students talked to each other, they decided it would be really great to have an environmental moot court competition. So this student volunteered PACE and came back to PACE. And to this day, the environmental moot court competition is run by a student board. And I'm amazed by the, the generosity of our students. They're not allowed to compete in the competition because they're uh, PACE students, but they're all here on their week off from school, volunteering to run uh, the, comp um, uh, the competition. Um, and it is absolutely uh, amazing uh, being a part of it. So my first time coming to Pace Law School was as a competitor in the National Environmental Law Moot Court Competition. Wow. And I've been serving on panels. Absolutely not. And I wasn't half as good as many of the competitors that I've, seen, <laughs> that I've seen this round. But I will tell you, the Pace Law School, through the uh, Jeffrey G. Miller National Environmental Law Moot Court Competition, has um, helped to launch a generation of environmental lawyers. And there are many inv practicing environmental lawyers who come back every year and volunteer their time to serve as judges. And in talking to them on the different judging panels, many of them have a story about how their participation in this competition helped launch them into the career they have today. And they continue to come back to be a part of it because it is so exciting to watch the next generation of environmental attorneys sharpening their teeth. Wow. Sounds really exciting. Um, what kind of work are our faculty and students doing in other areas of environmental law? We're always extraordinarily busy. Um, uh, we have a group of professors who've come together, um, all of whom have different pots of expertise with respect to climate change law. And something that we're interested to do is try to promote what we think of as climate law literacy, which is um, 
to find a way to communicate the basics of climate law that will help people um, to develop critical perspectives and help to participate in the decarbonization of our society who may not have been trained in environmental law um, in a formal way. So there are many people who, by the time they went to law school, there wasn't such a thing as climate change law. And there are other people who are working in the climate policy space who haven't been to law school, but have an extraordinarily sophisticated understanding um, about other climate-related issues. And so we're coming together to prepare a book that's designed to help provide an introduction and overview to the law of climate change um, that can make someone who hasn't taken a formal climate change law class, give them a literacy about the underlying law that will uh, help them navigate in that space. So you're really trying to spread the word, it sounds like. And are there other areas in which you're trying to have a broader impact than just at the law school? Absolutely. So one of the um, newest programs we have at the law school that we're launching for the first time next year is we are going to complement the National Environmental Law Moot Court competition with a new student competition um, called the Pace Environment, the Pace Environmental Law and Policy Hack Competition. And the idea behind it, the environmental moot court is a very traditional appellate brief writing uh, and oral argument competition designed to sharpen very traditional lawyering skills for the participating students. The environmental law and policy hack um, is designed to give students a chance to marry law and policy to come up with creative, innovative ideas for addressing current environmental challenges. The idea is each team that participates has to have at least two law students, but is invited and encouraged to include stakeholders in their communities and interdisciplinary members of the team, like scientists. This year, the problem we've given students is to ask them to think about how local governments can promote the build-out of vegetative, vegetative spaces that will support climate mitigation and adaptation. So effectively, we identify a current policy challenge in the environmental space and try to tap the creative energy of law students around the country to come up with innovative solutions. And the winner will get a seed money to actually try to implement the policy uh, and legal approaches that they've identified. How about the clinics? I hear your clinics are really amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about your clinics? So our clinics represent the same kind of way in which our environmental law program is um, both kind of well-established uh, and kind of define the field with respect to environmental legal education and also how we continue to, to grow in new directions. So our environmental litigation clinic was one of the first clinics in the United States that gave students the opportunity in law school to represent public interest environmental clients. We have long represented uh, the Hudson River Keeper. We just, the Pace Clinic, um, just sued the New York State Department of Environmental Protection on behalf of uh, um, uh, River Keeper uh, to enforce the Sewage Pollution Right to Know Act. And I, I don't know how much you, you want to know about this, but... Uh-oh! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, New York City is, with some frequency, um, sending raw sewage into area waterways. 
the Sewage Pollution Right to Know Act requires that when they do so, that they notify the public within four hours so that recreational users of our waterways can protect themselves from exposure to that raw sewage. They have not been implementing or complying with the act in the way that they are meant to. And so our clinic has, is working with Riverkeeper uh, to bring a lawsuit to require that that Sewage Pollution Right to Know Act be enforced uh, in the way it, it was meant to be. Well, that's going to be especially timely as we get to the summer, I, I suspect. That's right. If you've ever seen those beach-closed notifications, typically it's because there's been a precipitation event that has led to so much sewage overflow um, that... Um, uh, levels of certain bacteria are exceeded in the waterways. And that's our traditional environmental litigation clinic. Our newest clinic in the environmental program is the Food and Beverage Law Clinic. And the Food and Beverage Law Clinic um, is not out there bringing lawsuits. Instead, what they're doing is providing transactional to support to entities that are trying to work towards sustainable food systems. So think of these as small businesses, small farmers, startup companies that are interested in building a more sustainable food system but may need help to get off the ground and to navigate the legal requirements to incorporate, to become a 501c3, to understand food labeling requirements. And to give you a for example of the really kind of innovative groups that the Food and Beverage Law Clinic is working with, the Food and Beverage Law Clinic has worked with a group called the American Solar Grazing Association, um, which is promoting the idea that you can have grazing co-located with solar installations, which has a number of benefits. So the first is you're obviously helping to support a renewable energy source and providing an additional um, income associated with the solar grazing facility, which can reduce the cost of producing that renewable energy. At the same time, you may be providing an, um, an alternate revenue stream for a small farmer uh, to help make their enterprise profitable. So our food and beverage law clinic represented the American Solar Grazing Association in its formation, its application for tax-exempt and not-for-profit status, and has been working with them to develop model templates to craft contracts between sheep farmers and solar developers. Wow. So all this is going on at the Haub Law School, but it's only a part of everything that's going on at the Haub Law School. But focusing just on the environmental program and, and some of the work that you're doing, what do all these activities do for the students there? A really notable feature um, about the Haub Environmental Law Program um, is that it is oriented around um, student development. So, for example, the attorneys bringing the lawsuits uh, on behalf of Riverkeeper are actually our law students who are practicing and in court pursuant to a practice order agreement. With respect to the American, our representation of the American Solar Grazing Association, it's our students who are drafting these agreements on their behalf under the supervision of our, um, of our professors. Both the National Environmental Moot Court Competition, it's student-run by a student board. The um, uh, Environmental Law and Policy Hack is expressly designed to be an opportunity for law students to try to take a stab at marrying law to policy and having an opportunity to take their ideas out for a spin in the real world. 
which is, again, a student-centered um, opportunity. In addition to all of um, uh, to the ways in which students are engaged in the programs I've already described, we have a whole host of other student activities going on at the law school. We have an environmental law review uh, where students select, edit, and then publish environmental law-related articles uh, twice a year. Um, we also have an environmental law society, an animal rights law society, we have groups of HAUB scholars working in the environmental space um, who are uh, going out on international experiences. We have a delegation of students we will be taking to Marseille this summer to participate in the International Union for the Conservation of Nature World Conservation Congress. That's an opportunity. There are only two law schools in the world that are permitted to vote at the World Conservation Congress. Pace Law School is one of them, and our law students um, are involved in an, an incredibly concrete way in the work that Pace does at the World Conservation Congress. So last year, we had a class where students studied under the direction of Professor Nick Robinson to actually prepare resolutions to propose to be adopted at the World Conservation Congress. The students have since worked to defend those uh, resolutions and will be coming to the Congress to try to advocate for their passage and on their behalf. So, for example, we have one student who is very concerned about the plight of the vaquita porpoise in the Gulf of Mexico, and she has proposed a resolution to require more protective measures for the vaquita, which could be voted on and adopted at the World Con Conservation Congress this June. Wow. So much going on. So impressive. Your leadership is very much appreciated. Um, we are so grateful for everything you and everyone there is doing, and I know that uh, you will continue to make a big impact at this important moment. So thank you for joining me, and good luck with the moot court competition and everything else. Thank you, Katie. Next, we've got Professor Melanie Dupuis on the phone. Hi, Melanie. Hello. Melanie's the chair of our Department of Environmental Studies and Science. Our Department of Environmental Studies and Science is a thriving program on campuses in Pleasantville and in New York. And I know there's a conference coming up, too, on March 6th on the future of meat. First, let's hear from a Pace student who's grappling with questions about meat consumption. My name is Christy Oliemi. I am a senior, and I'm a behavioral neuroscience major. I'm a vegan. At first, it was health reasons solely. Um, my background is biology, so I did some research um, about the certain mechanisms that are um, influenced by meat, particularly like uh, cancer and um, heart disease, uh, stroke. A lot of the leading causes of death in America are diet-related. Even if there's not a complete um, cessation of meat consumption, I do think that we're heading towards a decrease because people are now becoming more aware of like the environmental impact of meat as well as, um, for some people, it's like an ethical reason as well, and others, it's a health reason. Melanie, I bet that what the students talking about is some of what your conference will be grappling with. Can you tell us about it? Yes, a number of our students are very concerned about uh, issues around meat, whether it's because of climate change or because of animal welfare. 
uh, and uh, we also have a number of students who are very interested in agriculture. And there are a number of different perspectives that um, we're, we're going to be thinking through during this conference. Um, one is the you know the the ethical aspects of, of of meat eating, but another one is what are the implications for the um, uh, the farming sector because there are these. People who argue that it's not the cow, it's the how, and that how you go about raising uh, a meat for, uh, cattle for meat uh, makes a difference in terms of how it relates to both animal welfare and to um, the emissions from animals for climate change. And so we, what we thought was um, and that, that we'd bring all of these people into the same room. And we would have them have a discussion where we sort of air all the different points of view on this and um, let people sort of make their own decisions based on um, an overview of all the different perspectives. So we, we're going to have folks who are experts uh, from all these different perspectives, including folks um, in the uh, at the law school the, at, with the food clinic, uh, food law clinic, as well as um, other uh, scientists, climate scientists, plus we're going to have ranchers uh, who are also going to, um, particularly uh, ran ranchers who are doing this kind of new kind of regenerative um, agriculture. And, um, and we're going to have them sort of talk to each other because if you look at all of the different um, ways in which people are discussing these issues, there's such a wide variety of perspectives and it's really a very open question right now. Um, uh, you know, there's there's no doubt that we're that there's climate change. Exactly how we go about dealing with climate change is one of those things that people are discussing quite a bit. And in, in terms of what is the role of agriculture, what is the role of consumption, what are the roles of individual choices? These are all the sorts of things um, that we're going to be hearing from at this conference. Well, it sounds great, and I know I'm looking forward to it. Now, I also understand that students' interest in environmental issues tend to have different focuses on, the, on our two uh, environmental studies campuses in New York and, and Pleasantville. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, one of the things that we found as we talked to students, because we we put the department together six years ago, and we listened to students, like, what is it that you're interested in and why are you here? And what we found on the Pleasantville campus was that students there were really um, interested in particularly, they wanted jobs where they get to work outside. So they were very interested in um, jobs like park ranger or working with various nature preserves, uh, you know, dose doing being an environmental educator at a local park, things like that. And um, and so what we did is we we created uh, more of a curriculum there that has to do with what what kind of skills do you need to get that kind of job. 
so one of the things we did is also is we hired uh, Professor Michael Rubo, who uh, was the science director at T-Town, uh, and now he's one of our faculty, and he has put together a, um, a, a, a conservation management certificate that gives students all the skills, the environmental education, the uh, natural history, the habitat analysis, the kinds of skills you need in order to get those kinds of jobs. What we found in New York was that students were very interested in sort of the, the, the issues of sustainability. How do you, how do you uh, lower uh, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions by adopting new technologies, making uh, buildings more energy efficient, um, you know, all of the sorts of how do you go about sort of planning for those uh, sorts of things. And we've been one of the reasons why we know this is so important on the New York City campus is that the students themselves put together a club called the Pace Sustainability Initiative that it now has uh, a couple hundred students in it. And they actually work with the campus here in terms of, um, you know, how do we make the cafeteria more sustainable? How do we um, lower the amount of water the campus uses or the energy the campus uses? And uh, and so, in, in some ways, by working with the campus and with our wonderful sustainability director, uh, Ryan McEnany, um, who's been fabulous about working with the students, is that the students get trained in sort of how to work with administrators to to come up with realistic solutions and 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 how do you design those solutions in ways that are practical and um and and how do you work in groups, you know, with these administrators? And they've they've been they've they've it's enabled them to become kind of sustainability professionals. And from there, we found that a number of these students end up working in the sustainability field, becoming sustainability directors in um, when they graduate in 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 jobs um, around the city. So these are the sorts of uh, experiences that students are getting here in in New York City. We still do the, you know, the nature in the city. Professor uh, Ann Toomey is very much involved in um, the, the Gotham Coyote Project. She was, she was one of its founders. She's very interested in sort of how people relate to animals in the city. So we still have a lot of work on wildlife in the city and, and nature in the city, um, watersheds and so on with uh, Professor Monica Palta. But we have our emphasis in Westchester is on hands-on um, work, uh, you know, learning how to work with these local organizations because lower new, the lower Hudson Valley is probably one of the richest in terms of the number of environmental organizations in the country. And we try to work with, we've, we work with at least two dozen organizations in the Hudson Valley uh, at, in partnership. So, and, and we place students in internships in, in those places. So, so then our, um, and so I would love to talk to you a little bit more about the PACE path and um, uh, how, how our students have been following through the PACE path in order to go from the kinds of um, instruction we're giving them, in, particularly in Westchester, and then how that leads to uh, full-time employment in, in that, uh, from that, once they graduate from that campus. So there's a lot in what you just said. So what I heard you say is that 
New York City has more of a sustainability emphasis and the jobs and the, 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 the internships tend to be along those lines. And then in Pleasantville, there's more of a conservation path. Now, you just brought up the PACE path, which those of us at PACE know about, um, but that's the philosophy uh, approach of combining a personalized approach to education, the academic aspect with internships. And so can you talk a little bit about how that works for the Environmental Studies and Science program? Yes, and and I'm going to focus in particular on the Westchester campus now because of this um, sort of more sort of working with the naturalist organizations in that area. So um, let me give you a couple of examples. One of them is um, a student, Chase, our student Chase Harnett, who graduated a few years ago. But Chase was very interested in agriculture, and. Um, and he ended up getting an internship at Stone Barnes to to work with Stone Barnes, and but he also became um, our garden keeper in the Nature Center uh, to help us develop this new Nature Center garden, which Angelo Spilo uh, is, um, is has been uh, the director of the garden, and he's been in Chase was one of the, the garden workers, and in and from there he. Um, he he t- he took some of the you know he 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 um became eventually a uh went on to a summer internship program at Stone Barnes and then became a uh a work uh you know employed there on a full-time basis so he's now one of their greenhouse manager uh, assistants um so so he went from so that's a t- very typical pace path um path for our students. Uh, you know, a, a, another one is Kim Castaldo, who started out at Rockefeller State Park as an intern, um, took several of Professor uh, Rubo's courses uh, even before we had the certificate organized uh, and sort of learned how to, how to do sort of natural history uh, habitat assessment. And now she's a full-time uh, worker at Rockefeller State Park. Um, and so so what you see there is this sort of combination of we train students to give them the kinds of skills that when they go into an internship, they actually have something to offer, right? So they have they have the mapping skills. They 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 know um, they know a, a, a maple from an oak. They know um, how to do, to do research. They know how to collect data. They know how to uh, they know their plant ID and their tree ID. Uh, and um, and they know how to analyze, you know, whether a habitat is biodiverse or not. Uh, these are all things that are important for. You know, these are important skills that local organizations need uh, in the Hudson Valley, um, in in terms of their their. Um, Employees, and so we've had students. We've, we've placed students not just at Rockefeller State Park. We have a number of students who have uh, uh, full-time positions at T-Town Lake Reservation, uh, and uh, we we have a number of students who are working uh, on a regular basis. Even before they're even, they have paid positions at the Greenberg Nature Center, um, and um, and and so we have a number of these different uh, students who are working in um, these. 
these organizations. Uh, and so we, we, we've really, um, I think that that combination of the giving them good skills, finding them good internships, before you know it, they get jobs in these places. So um, I think that's worked out as a really good um, sort of, uh, approach to uh, getting our students uh, job ready and um, employed. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to hear all this. I know that you're helping getting our students ready to graduate, ready to change the world. And we haven't talked much about it, but <coughs> excuse me, we haven't talked much about it, but I, I know we also have a master's program in environmental policy that our students are also doing extremely well. I don't know if there's anything you want to add on the master's program. We are extremely proud of our, ma our master's in environmental policy. Um, one of the things we're so t incredibly proud of is that everyone who has graduated so far has uh, a, a, a position in the field. So, but, but by you know by the you know if you start with Alexandra DeRosa, who's who's now the environmental justice program coordinator at the New York Power Authority, to um, Alexis Granger, who and I think Alexis is a really good example as well because she was always interested in animal welfare, and so she was very so and and she. Um, honed those skills um, uh, in the master's program and now is working for the Animal Welfare Institute in D.C. And then we, you know, Andrew Welch was very interested in sustainability and now he's at the Office of Sustainability at NYU. Um, you know, Nicole Vergona and Pavan Nadu were both very interested in environmental politics and um, uh, 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 Nicole Vergona is now the regional, the deputy regional director for uh, Senator Charles Schumer, um, and, uh, uh, and and Pavan was working for Assemblywoman Dee Dee Barrett. So they're they're all you know every one of our students who's graduated so far has gotten a, a position, a local position in um, or, or a DC position, um, and um, we're we're very proud of that. And it, so our one of the reasons why these students get these. Um, jobs is that they have to do an externship. And so all of our students are required to do an externship with an organization. They learned how to be professional uh, workers in these organizations. And um, and so, uh, and so, uh, Professor Land, who is very, you know, is very uh, well known in the area, has been creating these partnerships with a number of different organizations, and um, and it really seems to have led to uh, some excellent results. Wow! Talk about impact. Thank you, Melanie, for everything you and your colleagues do. Thank you for joining me. It's time for me to grab my beautiful blue reusable water bottle and wrap things up for today. Thank you to Professors Katie Koo and Melanie Dupuy for joining me and for the critical work they're doing to help our students learn how to protect and preserve our environment. If you're interested in learning about environmental protection, conservation, sustainability, policy, law, come visit us at Pace University. Thanks, as always, to the Department of Media, Communications, and Visual Arts on our Pleasantville campus, where professors Kate Fink, Lou Guarneri, and Paul Zeek make this podcast happen. We'll be back later this semester with a new PaceCast. Until then, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas or comments for the PaceCast, you can write me at president at pace.edu. I'm Marvin Krizlov, and I will talk with you on the next PaceCast. Cast.